0: As we are looking at the second book of Moses and this is obviously a continuation of the book of Genesis and it is meant to be read as the continuation of the book of Genesis and it is meant to be read as the sequel to the book of Genesis remembering everything that went before in the book of Genesis everything leading up to what is going to happen in this book now we read these words These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaohs store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra, and the other Puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women... Are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter Live. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, at the outset of his commentary on Exodus, Phil Rykin captures really the essence of this book with these words. He says, Exodus is an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. The adventure takes place under the hot desert sun just beyond the shadow. Of the great pyramids there are two mighty nations israel and egypt led by two great men moses the liberating hero and pharaoh the enslaving villain almost every scene is a masterpiece the baby in the basket the burning bush the river of blood and the other plagues the angel of death the crossing of the red sea the manna in the wilderness the water from the rock the thunder and lightning on the mountain the ten commandments The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf, the glory in the tabernacle, once heard, the story is never forgotten. And yet, for all of that, it's interesting, so many Christians probably don't know what to do with the book of Exodus. Now, uh, some of that is because people get bogged down with historical and archaeological issues. Um, There is great debate about the historicity of the Exodus. Scholars have debated whether it actually happened. Part of the reason is because the only account of the Exodus is here in the Bible. There's no extra biblical account. And you could understand very easily why the Egyptians wouldn't have written an account of this, very simply. Um, There are also dating issues. This uh, it occurred almost no doubt either in the 15th century B.C. or the 13th century B.C. There is not uniformity of opinion about when this happened. There is lots of debate and there is lots of discussion. But, but if we allow ourselves to get bogged down in history or archaeology and, and we miss the theology of Exodus, and, and let me just say this, it is a historical book, and it is it is full of historical accounts. But if, if we get bogged down in the the historical and archaeological details of it and the debate surrounding it, and we miss what place it holds in redemptive history, then we're not going to understand the purpose of this book. Um, the Exodus really becomes the gospel of the Old Testament. Let me say that again. The Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. If you want to understand the gospel in the New Testament, what Jesus does at the cross, you have to understand what God is doing at the Exodus. That is all part of the same story, the same meta narrative. In fact, there are striking similarities, aren't there? There is a baby who is pursued here in Exodus. And Pursued to be destroyed but he is delivered down in Egypt and remember Jesus when he is an infant is delivered when he goes down into Egypt and then He comes out of Egypt remember just like Israel comes out of Egypt remember and he goes through the waters just like Moses goes through the waters and he goes Into the wilderness just like Moses goes into the wilderness and he goes up on the mountain just like Moses goes up on the mountain and Jesus recapitulates, he redoes everything that happens with Israel in the wilderness, in redemptive history, because ultimately, Jesus is the true Israel of God, who is going to bring about the true and greater Exodus. So that what happens in this book has everything to do with what Jesus does on the cross and in his resurrection. So that if we're going to understand anything of this book, we are only going to understand it fully in light of what Christ does, and if we're going to understand what Christ does, we're only going to understand it fully and truly in light of what happens in this book. Now, it's interesting that this book is also set against the background of what God has been doing in Genesis. Remember, the covenant Lord has called Abraham— He has called Abraham out. He has separated him from the people. He has given him great promises. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the nations in you. I'm going to give you you the world as an inheritance. That that in your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed. That no one received the promises that God gave Abraham. And what happens in Exodus is, is... the outworking of what God has already promised Abraham. It is God carrying on what he has begun by promising Abraham, those covenantal promises. Um, We're going to see that here at the outset of chapter 1, and we're going to see it throughout this book. We're going to see it in God's dealings, in the conflict between God and Pharaoh. We're going to see it in God delivering his people, everything that God is doing God is ultimately fulfilling his promises that he made to Abraham God is keeping his covenant promises that is the big point of Exodus God is saving Israel for his own namesake God is keeping his promises for his own glory Now that's going to be hugely instructed to us Because he is the same God to us today that he was to Israel This is not some antiquated, ancient Near Eastern literature that has no application to your life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, writing to a church that he planted, a New Covenant church, he said, all of our fathers passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all drank the same spiritual drink all drank from the same rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, these things were written for our example. So Paul's going to look back at God's dealings with Israel in the Exodus, and he's going to say they were written for you and for me in the New Covenant era. So this is not just a history lesson for children in a Sunday school class. These have massive implications for you and me spiritually for every day of our life. Now, as we look here at this opening chapter of Exodus, I want us to consider three things that we see so prominently. And they are God prospering his people in the midst of their persecution. And God protecting his people in the midst of their persecution. I want us to consider those three things. Prosperity, persecution, and protection. Now notice the prosperity. Notice this chapter opens, Exodus 1, 1 through 7. Now the the book opens with a list of the names of the 12 tribes. Why is that important? You might miss this. You might just think, well, that's just setting the historical background Here's Israel, and God's defining them according to their tribes. Here's why that's important, and and it's really strikingly important. Because remember, Israel is in Egypt because 11 of the tribes sold Joseph into slavery. So the only reason they're in Egypt is because 11 of Jacob's sons, out of jealousy, sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites to be a slave who then in turn carried him down to Egypt. God then sent a famine. That famine drove them down to Egypt for the grain. Joseph ultimately was exalted to being the second most powerful person in the world, in Egypt. And God used Joseph to save all of his father's house, and ultimately to bring them down and gave them their own little place in Goshen, a little garden uh, cloistered area off to the side of Egypt. And so it's interesting that when the book of Exodus opens, it opens with a listing of the 12 tribes. Because they didn't deserve the prosperity that God was giving them. That's the point of the 12 tribes being mentioned at the beginning of this. The 12 tribes did nothing to deserve God's blessing. You see, everything. About God's blessing and the prosperity that they enjoy is entirely by grace. That's the point. Everything that happens to Israel is entirely by grace. According to their actions, they deserve judgment. According to God's covenant promises, they get grace and prosperity and blessing. Isn't that marvelous? Because God had told Abraham he was going to bless him and his offspring. God is going to make good on his promises. And even though it's going to come in a very different way than Abraham would have had it come, and even though God's blessings come in our lives in very different ways than we would have them come, when the covenant Lord determines that he is going to bless His blessings come entirely by grace, but they often and almost always come in very different ways than we would determine that they come. And so here you see that all the descendants of Jacob are now there. There are 70. Joseph was already in Egypt, and now Joseph has died, Moses tells us, and all his brothers and all that generation. Now notice verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them now that is the language of creation isn't it be fruitful and multiply and This is in the context of redemption This is in the context of God's covenant dealings in in a sense God wants you to read that language as he is doing something in in the new creation. By the way, Israel is always going to prefigure the typical new creation. When God brings Israel through the Red Sea and he he separates the waters, right? The dry land appears. That language is the same language as at, at creation. The waters are separated. The dry land appears. God is bringing Israel through he's redeeming them here at the beginning of Exodus. He's already intimating that he is doing something in Redemption the Covenant Lord is 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 is, he is bringing about a new creation Um, his, His redeeming grace is operative in the life of his people. This is not just physical multiplication that we're to take away from this this is God's redeeming blessing on his people um, that language is going to be used throughout, even when there's opposition. Notice um, notice that when Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, begins to oppress them, notice that no sooner does he oppress them, notice verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. Um, What's the point of that? Nothing is going to stop the redeeming grace of the covenant Lord. That's the point. Nothing is going to stop the redeeming grace of the covenant Lord. Israel didn't merit that. They didn't deserve it. You and I don't deserve God's blessings. We don't merit God's blessings. When there is increase and there is growth in grace, when the church grows numerically, we don't merit that. Um, God's blessing is always undeserved, but it is always based on his overflowing goodness and his commitment, his commitment to follow through with his covenant promises. For his namesake. You know, theologians have wrestled with finding a common theme to mark the, the central theme of this book, and probably the best, and Reichen points this out, the best theme is that God saves for his own glory. All that God does in the lives of his people in blessing them, he does for his own glory, for his namesake. Whether it is The multiplying of Israel, or whether it is in the victory he has in the conflict over Pharaoh in Egypt. God is doing all that he is doing for his namesake. So that when God blesses us, he does that so that his name will be known. So that his glory will be manifested. Um, I wonder how much we think about that in our own lives. Now, remember... The persecution happens quickly. Um, no sooner has Israel begun to be fruitful and multiply. Joseph has died. There is a new king over Egypt. He did not know Joseph. And now he says to his people notice this, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Um, I think it's interesting. It's almost always the policy of persecutors and heretics. To make God's people look dangerous or deficient. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's almost always the policy um, of persecutors and heretics to make God's people look dangerous or deficient. Israel was probably no threat to the Egyptians, and yet notice what the king says, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now, Was the king of Egypt really afraid that the Israelites were going to take them over? No. What was he concerned about? He was concerned that they were going to get so big they would leave so that they couldn't put them to forced labor. He was not concerned that they were going to take them over. That was just a counterfeit argument for him to stir up a a way to oppress them among his people. In, in sort of ethnic uh, opposition of this minority group. But notice that what he did, he said, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramsey. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, if you looked in the Hebrew, there are seven words that Moses uses to explain the service and the work and the laborer that Pharaoh was setting them to to explain just how burdensome what the king of Egypt was doing to them was. And, and the the whole idea of the persecution that Israel was suffering was thrown under the idea of slavery. Now, you'll know this that in the New Testament, the slavery that Israel was in. Served as a picture of the slavery that all of us are in to Satan and sin and death by nature So The enslavement israel was experiencing under pharaoh Was meant to be a picture of the spiritual bondage. We are all in by nature to Satan and sin and death Um, What's interesting when Jesus Contended with the Jews in his day in John chapter 8. I've always thought this was fascinating Um, He said everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin and they said we've never been a slave to anyone Well, they had been enslaved to Egypt They had been enslaved to the Babylonians and they were currently under Roman rule when they said that but they were so blind to it, just like we are by nature, that they didn't want to see what they actually were. Isn't that interesting? That they, they didn't want to see what they were by nature. Now, the Israelites here, they felt the oppression, they felt, they felt the servitude. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Um, and the Lord will mercifully deliver them, and He will give a picture of the deliverance that He gives. And yet, there is here, and we don't want to miss this, there is here a picture of the opposition of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. That's that's really what's happening here. What's going on between Israel and Egypt is, is really that Egypt under Pharaoh, is a, is a microcosm of the kingdom of Satan seeking to destroy the kingdom of Christ and ultimately seeking to destroy the promise of the Redeemer. Isn't that interesting? Because what happens is the oppression, the oppression that the, the servitude is not enough for Pharaoh. The people still multiply. God's blessing keeps accruing. And so he has to take it to the next level and the next level is I will abort all of the male children in Israel. So so slavery is not enough. Now we will go to abortion and we will abort all of the male babies. We will eradicate the male children and we will essentially eradicate it will be genocide and we will do away with these people. Now if all the male children die What happens to the promise of the Redeemer? It's lost. All the male children die. There's no seed of the woman. There's no seed of Abraham. Ultimately, who is Satan aiming at in the oppression of Israel? It's the destruction of the promised Redeemer. What is Exodus 1 about? It's about God preserving the promise of redemption. Um, I think we sometimes miss this in our reading of the Bible. We look for, how does this, what does this have to say to me about my life right here? Well, this is what it says: the God who redeemed us through Jesus Christ will not let His promises fail, no matter how much there is opposition. From the kingdom of Satan, he will not let his promise fail. No matter how much the world rages, he will not let his promises fail. No matter how much the church is persecuted, his promises will not fail. Let me, let me read to you what Charles Spurgeon says here on this. Spurgeon says, The whole history of the long feud... Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent illustrates the subtlety of the serpent's seed and the simplicity of the woman's seed. But still more does it bring to light the infinite wisdom of Him who rules the seed of the woman, who will in the end bruise the serpent's head and give unto His people the cause they have espoused and a complete triumph. Whatever has been done by the enemies, of God in rage or in recklessness, God has always met it calmly and quietly. He has shown himself ready for every emergency. He has not only baffled and utterly defeated all the intentions of wicked men, but he has turned their strange devices to good account for the development of his own sovereign purposes. Do you see that? That no matter what Pharaoh's doing, God's purposes are triumphing. No matter what it looks like in the moment, God's purposes are triumphing. God is not flustered by Pharaoh's rage and malice. Um, we are flustered by the rage of the world often. God is not flustered. Now, here's the beautiful thing, and I want us to thirdly consider this, the protection. The protection of the seed God uses two very unlikely heroes. He uses two midwives. Um, We don't know whether they were Egyptians or Israelites. We don't know. We're not told. We don't know how many midwives there were. I would imagine there were tens of thousands. These two are specifically named. We are told that they lie to Pharaoh And we are told that they deliver the male Hebrew babies and the Holy Spirit praises them Not for lying But for delivering the male Hebrew babies notice that the King of Egypt commands them To kill all the sons and let all the daughters live but notice verse 17 the midwives feared God And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live, the midwives said to to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are literally lively and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because of the midwives feared God. He gave them families. Now, what is the point in this? God protects his people in unlikely and unexpected ways. Um, These women feared God. They didn't fear the most powerful ruler in the world. They didn't value their lives of such importance that they uh, caved in to an ungodly and wicked ordinance. Um, There is a time for civil disobedience and this is an example of such a time Um, These are women who uh, Have a mixture of faith and fear They, They are fearful and so they lie when they're confronted They're not commended for their lying. They're commended for their faith And yet they singularly are used by God to deliver the male children, ultimately to deliver the Redeemer, Moses, the Old Covenant Redeemer, and to deliver those male children, one of whom from whom the covenant line and the Lord Jesus will come, no doubt, and yet they become an example to us of what it looks like when we face opposition for the sake of the gospel. You know, we live in the freest country in the history of the world. And we love to complain about our loss of freedoms all the time. And we have never known any persecution like our brothers and sisters have known in any way, shape, or form. And yet the days may come, and are probably coming, that this country will know opposition. And the days may come when believers have to stand. And in that day, notice twice here, God preserves and protects his people when his people fear him. That's not a servile fear. That's not a terror that is a reverencing of God over men. You know, I've thought about this a lot lately, just my own heart, and I don't know about you, but I, I oftentimes see so much fear of man inside, wanting approval, wanting to be liked, not wanting to be... Um, not wanting to be unliked. Um, We have have got to become a people who want the Lord's praise and who want to do what is pleasing to Him regardless of what others think, even in the church. Sometimes especially in the church. Now, That doesn't mean that we want to become people that say I don't care what anybody thinks. We should care what people think. That's not fear of man. There's a right caring about what people think. Um, But we need to be people who fear God and do what is pleasing to him even and especially when no one else is doing that, even and especially when it's costly. Um, you know the lord used that that simple act of obedience in these women He used that to protect and preserve his people I want to encourage you tonight as we consider this introductory lesson Just that we have a covenant lord who is going to keep his promises He is going to fulfill his promises He is going to do everything that he has said he is going to do. Nothing is going to stop him Um, No opposition, no governments, no rulers, no challenges, no threats, no persecution is going to stop him. Nothing is going to stop this God from fulfilling his promises. If he has promised to bless us, he is going to do that despite our failures, despite our history, despite our demeriting of his blessing. It is all of His grace. It is all because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and He does it all for His glory. And the right response for us is to do what these midwives did, if and when persecution comes and opposition comes, is that we would be walking in the fear of God and that we would be trusting in Him in the midst of that, knowing that our God has promised to prosper, and to protect in the midst of persecution. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are weighty truths and yet truths that we need to hear. We pray that you would open our minds and hearts to understand them. We pray that you would give us a greater acknowledgement of the way in which you were doing all things for your own glory. And that you do keep your covenant promises. And that you have promised to bless your people even in the face of persecution. Lord, would you make us a people who fear you like the midwives, even when it is costly? We pray, our God, that you would stir us up by way of a reminder this evening and that you would give us great joy in knowing that our Savior has conquered Satan and sin and death for us and has let us out through that greater exodus by his death and resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.